Morning, everyone. Morning. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Good morning to you, too. Glad to see you. <laughs> All right. Hey, I'm glad to see you. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really gr- glad you're here today. I love, so I just got back from sabbatical a week and a half ago or something like that, and to come back on Blitz Week, it's like just about the best thing ever. So much fun. And uh, to be able to have the kids come in here and to be able to a lot of you don't get to be here during the week when it's happening, but to see the life that goes on around here is remarkable. And uh, all of you who volunteered to help over 600 people, high school and, and adults, uh, to volunteer, fantastic. Thank you all so much for that. That is just a beautiful thing. So um, one of the things that has been going on in my uh, journey here the last couple of weeks since I've been back is people keep coming and saying, hey, how was your sabbatical? And talking about it, which I love to do. But I realized that every time someone asks me about my sabbatical, I give them a different answer than I gave the last person. Not different, like, in, I mean, it was, it, I tell everybody, it was amazing. It's like way up here on that part. But I have so many stories to tell, I, I can't tell you all the same stories. So, or I can't tell you all the stories, so I'll, I tell a different one every time. So I'm going to do my best over the next three years to tell you all my stories. All right? But I can't, you will not be able to hear all of them, and that's too bad for you. I apologize for that. But I want to give you a, a one or a couple today that will relate to what we want to talk about as we're talking through Scripture and we're talking about that thing we do. We're talking these days about why we do what we do in the way we do it here at Lakeside. And uh, so five years ago when my turn for sabbatical came up, uh, Don and I went to Italy and we, we, set out, we set out on what I called a sacred architecture tour. Because I, I love churches and I love, I love the church, which is us, but I also like the buildings that churches meet in. They're very interesting. So we went to Italy and we just looked at dozens of churches, like dozens and dozens of them. And they're all so interesting. Some of them were really tiny and some of them are cathedrals, but everyone was designed with this architecture to be able to somehow turn your attention toward God. I love that about that. And so we're looking at these buildings. We went to various cities. We saw this amazing architecture in Milan, and there's something coming from Pisa and uh, from Florence and from Rome, and just really, really amazing things. Except that we went into all these churches, and one common theme or one common story kept coming up in almost every church we went in in Italy, and that was this. The church was dying. I'm like, oh, no, and I, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're walking through these churches and I'm talking to Jesus while we're going through the church. I'm like, oh, Jesus, it can't die. I'm not worried that Jesus is going to let the church die. It's not. He's, he promised I will build my church. But I'm going into these churches, these buildings, and I'm like, oh, that, that one, the only people that are here are the people to see it as a museum. And the next one, the only people that are here are to see it as a museum. And so I'm looking at all these churches and they're dying or they're already dead. Now, I don't know all the issues that go into that, but I kept praying as we're going along. It's like, God, what does it take for your church to thrive with life? And so we went into, we went into this one church in a town called Luca, and the, the, a lot of the churches there have relics, like old pieces of, you know, a piece of Judas's robe that he wore when he betrayed Jesus or something. I don't know, just all kinds of little things like, oh, this, this was there when Jesus was around. I don't know if any of those things are real or not. But one of the kinds of relics that they have is they'll sometimes have a large glass box and the box will contain the body of a saint because they want to revere those people that have gone before. 
Well, in Luca, you come in the front doors of the church and you come, first thing you see when you come in the church is this box and it's got this saint who is in the box. Now, when in the Catholic way of looking at things, you don't become a saint till you've been dead for a long time. And you walk into this church and you see this saint. Now, I don't, know how, I don't know if churches advertise in Italy. You know, we do marketing and we, you know, we get the word out and stuff like that. I don't know what they do, but they'd have to have a tagline if they're going to market stuff. So I know maybe their tagline is, come to church, you'll look like this. And then I go, well, yeah, no wonder no one comes. Like, that's not what I want to look like. And then this last sabbatical last month we were in new england and i was serving a church there where we gave our time to serve in a church and the church had some struggles but it, but it had life in it but we're driving around in new england and again we saw all these beautiful churches these beautiful church buildings the architecture different than what it is in italy but really beautiful i made it one of my goals to take as many pictures of churches as i could especially the little white iconic churches those are just so great and then i realized when i got there why they're iconic it's because they're everywhere. Like, I stopped taking pictures of them. After about a week and a half, I'm like, I'm done with that, man. <laughs> I, got enough, I got enough pictures of that in my camera for the rest of my life. Because they're everywhere. And what's fascinating is New England at one time was a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ thrived. And followers of Jesus Christ were influencing everything in that community, everything in that culture. And that's not the same anymore. And a lot of those churches in New England are also dying or dead. In fact, someone sent me a picture. I didn't take this one, but somebody sent me a picture of this church in Charlestown, Boston. And the church has closed and they've sold it. You might not be able to see it. Let's, let me show you a sign a little closer. They've sold it to the Dollar Tree. It's now going to be the Dollar Tree Church. Well, it's not really going to be called that, but... I mean, look at that. So the, and everyone in, everyone in New England, they're celebrating. It's like, oh, look, we're using these old buildings for new purposes. And I'm going, that's just not the right purpose for that church building. Everything has a life cycle. I understand that. Every organization has a life cycle. Every human has a life cycle. I understand that. But I'm asking God while we're traveling around New England, it's like, God, what do you want to do to make sure that your church thrives? What do you want to do to make sure that your church thrives in New England but what I care more passionately about is, God, what do you want to do to make your church thrive and Folsom? What do you want to do to make our church thrive, this church thrive? What do, you want, what do you want to do so that your church thrives with life? Because I think that matters to God. I always look through Scripture when I'm trying to come up with, you know, like, God, what, do you, what are you doing and what do you want to do and what's your intention and all those kinds of things. And so I looked into Scripture to figure out, now, God, what's your, what's your deal with helping churches thrive? And I come to the Apostle Paul. He's the first missionary in the church, really, and he, he would go out and start churches in various places, and then he would write letters to them to say, this is what God wants. And in some cases, he would write, this is how God wants your church to thrive. Or in some cases, he was saying to them, I want to tell you why we do what we do in the way we do it, so that the church thrives. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you today, I'd love to have you pull it out. This would be the right time. And I want you to find the book of Colossians in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 4. 
If you don't have a copy, a paper copy of the Bible, that's cool. If you have your smartphone, there's a Bible app in there called Version. You can use that. We put some extra notes in there for you if that's helpful for you. Uh, if you want to just listen, that's fine. But let me read for you Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Here's what Paul says about a thriving church. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. And pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. How does a church thrive with life? And you may not care about that question. You might go, ah, you know, what the church can do what it does. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to ask this question. How does my life thrive with Christ? Paul goes, "Let let me lay it out for you. Here's what I recommend. Here's what I do. He goes, number one, devote yourselves to prayer. A church that prays will thrive. It's just how it is. A church that prays will thrive. Devote yourselves to prayer. He says, keeping, keeping alert, watching, and being, being engaged with it. So at Lakeside, we, uh, we, we believe that following Jesus should look like a well-crafted life. When you give your life to Christ, you go, I'm going to follow after him. There's something that becomes... Uh, compelling to us to live a well-crafted life. And we highlight five crafts here at Lakeside that build into that following of Jesus. And one of the crafts is prayer. We go, prayer matters. We've got a team, a prayer team. Some of them are going to be in the back of the auditorium today at the end of our gathering. And they'd love to pray for you. If you have something, you go, please pray for me. They'll pray for you back here. But it's not just about them praying. It's about us praying. And sometimes I hear people, they go, oh, we prayed about this and, and it worked. Prayer worked, which is always a noble thing to say. I understand the concept behind that. Something great happened because you prayed, but I, but I take issue with that a little bit. I don't think prayer works at all. I think God works and he listens to our prayers. God works. It's about what God wants to do. And prayer is an, is an ongoing invitation for God to never give up on us. Prayer is an ongoing invitation for God to never back up from us. Now, we already have a promise from Jesus where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But prayer is our way of engaging God in such a way that we're saying, God, stick with me. I'm not perfect at this. I'm not that great at it yet. Stick with me. And prayer is the means through which God says yes to us. He says, devote yourselves to prayer then he says, and let me give you a strategy. When you're thinking about your life and the life of your church and how you're going to thrive in the community that you're in, he goes, let me give you a strategy. He says, be wise toward outsiders. No church thrives that does not engage with people outside the church. I think what happens, the longer a church lives, and the church I served in New England was 250 years old. The churches that we saw in Italy were up to 600 or 1,000 or more years old. And what happens when a church grows older is a church finds more and more reasons that feel like compelling reasons to turn inward and say, we just have to look after ourselves. When the whole gospel from the beginning was about looking out for others and engaging with others, he says, I want you to be wise toward outsiders. I want you to make the most of every opportunity. 
with people who are outside the church still. It's the strategy for a church that thrives. It's a strategy for an individual Jesus follower and their life to thrive. Make the most of every opportunity with those who are outside the church. And then, and then I always want to know how. Like, okay, uh, Paul, you're telling me, here, here's the strategy. I, I want to know how do, I, how do I make the most of every opportunity? He goes, well, here's, here's three things. Number one, let your conversation always be with grace. Have you ever known anybody whose conversation was always full of grace? Conversation means the words that you say. It also, it also means, in this case, the life that you live. Let your way of life always be filled with grace. Have you ever known a person like that? Like their whole life, all the time, their conversation all the time is only filled with grace. Have you ever, ever, anyone? Oh, maybe, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm still working on that too. Okay, so what would it be like if you could find someone whose life, their conversation was always full of grace? What would that do to you? It would fill you up. If the people in your, what we call your oikos, the people in the front row of your life, the people that God has put right around you in your life, your network of people, if they found you were always speaking full of grace to them, what would it do to them? It would fill them up. Paul says, let your conversation be filled with grace and seasoned with salt. Now, you ever, you ever known a salty talker? Like a sailor or something? You ever... You, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, let your conversation be full of grace except when you're swearing. It's not, that's not what he's talking about. He, oh, so some of you have other work to do. I, I see wh- where that's going. But what he's saying is salt is that which seasons things. Salt is that which gives things flavor. And I realize salty language gives things a certain flavor. That's still not what he's talking about. Salt brings preservation to life. He says, I want, your, I want your life, your conversation to be filled with grace, and I want it to be full of seasoning so that you will know how to give an answer to everyone in your life. Sometimes if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to share your faith in Christ with others, you want to tell them about how much you love Jesus or how you love him or, or why you love him or those kinds of things, sometimes we get tongue-tied about that. We're like, well, I, don't, I want to talk about Jesus, but I don't know really what to say. We get a whole series a few months ago called God Talk, and it's all about how do you learn what to say and how do you engage people? And Paul goes, here's the strategy. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you could respond to each person. That's Paul's strategy for a church that thrives. That's Paul's strategy for a Jesus follower to thrive. And then I have to take that down to us and go, okay, now give, give me the how for us. And I realized that over the last 30 years at Lakeside has been in existence. That's been the foundation for what we do. That's been the filter for what we do. We want our church to be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that as a church, we know how to respond to our community. We've been doing that together for 30 years, but about eight or 10 months ago, we got our leadership team together and we said, hey, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit more among us. Let's describe what we do as a strategy and how we're trying to do things as a strategy. So we, we all get on board together and we know what we're trying to do and we're, and we're after it together. We're doing it together. 
And so we, we realize that the things we do really fit into this strategy that Paul gave in Colossians chapter 4. We said our, the first thing we notice about what we do as a strategic move as a church is we want to be helpful and relatable. I cannot, I cannot grasp churches that make, they, they put things so far up here that no one can reach it, or they put it so deep that no one can reach it. It has to be helpful. What we, what we do in our worship gatherings, our weekend gatherings, it has to be helpful. It has to be relatable. When, I got to, when we got to New England, we, we decided they had a big pulpit, big old pulpit in the church, and it was like really tall. So I said, hey, I'm not going to be able to see over that, so could we move it? <laughs> like, well, we don't want to move our pulpit, but if you can't see over it, it's a problem. So we moved it out of the way. But... but the reason I don't want to have a box in front of me is because I want to relate to you. We're whole people. We want to relate. We want the things we do to be relatable to people. What we do, even with a pulpit or not, is strategic for us. We think the church should be helpful and relatable. Second, we think it should, oh, and by the way, helpful and relatable is what it looks like to be filled with grace. They match up. Second thing we looked at, we said, well, we want our church to be provocative and engaging. I mean, isn't that what it looks like to be seasoned with salt? To be provocative, engaging. Do you you think Jesus was provocative? So we vote? We should vote? How many think Jesus was provocative? Yeah, right. The rest of you haven't read the, the story yet. He's so provocative. He had so many things to do and say that like poked people. You know, I'm like, when people poke me, I'm like, stop poking me. Don't ever poke me on Facebook. It makes me angry. Like, don't be poking me. But Jesus poked people. He provoked people. He provoked thought. He provoked feeling. He provoked reaction and response. He was provocative and he was engaging. There's a story in the gospel of Mark where Jesus is talking to this great crowd of people. And, in, and at the end of the story, it says the crowd loved to listen to him. That's the Jesus I know. He is provocative and he's engaging. And I go, that's what it looks like to be seasoned with salt. Helpful and relatable, full of grace, provocative and engaging, seasoned with salt. And the third strategy for us is to say, let's make sure that what we do is interactive and participatory. Why? Because it's about answering every person. It's about engaging with every person. It's about responding to every person, like Paul said. That's our strategy. We want to make sure that everything we do, whether it's Kids Fest, we want to make sure that we're doing, we, we evaluate it and we plan for things to fit that strategy. When we're doing stuff in our, in our student ministry, we want to follow that strategy. When we're having small groups, we want to follow that strategy where we have our conversation filled with grace and seasoned with salt and able to interact with others. That's what we do. Now, we thought it'd be fun today to do, to do a little rehearsal and to let, let's practice this together. So are you okay with that? We want to just, so, so do some interactive things and, and full of grace and also provoke a little bit. Yeah, so uh, let's see. This will be engaging, maybe. This is, my, this is one of my Blitz hats. This, this I, yeah, I know. I, I, this is the real me right here. That's why I looked in high school. No, not true, because Spikey wasn't cool way back in that generation so anyway so I got so I wear this because your mic wasn't on sorry when you're gonna poke fun at me Josh your microphone wasn't on so sorry yeah, did, you, did you plan it that way <laughs> <laughs> yeah to have your microphone off yeah yes. 
All right. So, uh, yeah, I, I wear this at Blitz because children are afraid of bald pastors. So, anyway. <laughs> All right, here's the deal. Josh is going to help me today, and he's going to have my little hair hat, and we've got some things written. You, can put it, you want to put it on, don't you? Yeah, well, I, I can mean, see you wanted to. It's like the opposite of hat hair. It's hair hat. It's hair hat. Boom, dad joke. I saw Edge is here somewhere. He's my you, dad joke. You don't, look, you don't look any different, except it's, it's yeah. bleached a little bit. Well, yeah, what I was going to say is, you know, you said it wasn't cool 20 years ago. I don't know if it's cool now. So, you know, <laughs> it is, it is when I wear it, man. Yeah, that's cool. cool. That's cool. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've got in my hand and Josh is going to put these in the hat. We've got some strips of paper that have some uh, statements or, or, or some things from Jesus. Where, in fact, let me back up a little bit. We put together a list of the top 25 most provocative things that Jesus said or did. And if you start running through your mind of the Gospels, you could probably think of some of the things that, that Jesus said or did that were really provocative. We put them on a list and, and put them in little strips of paper. And Josh is going to go around the room and, and get some friends to help read those. And we're just going to talk about them and see if Jesus was provocative or not. And see if we can land on those things and in a way that are full of grace or not. So, Cool. Josh. Well, we're going to start right up front here with my friend Jason. 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 Start us off, man. Provoke away. Gotta be the other way around. I'm just kidding. You kill all <laughs> Jesus forgave sins. Mark two one through twelve. That wasn't a question. That was a statement. Yeah, Jesus <laughs> hey, forgave hey, sins. Do that again. Read that with conviction. <laughs> Read it with conviction. Jesus forgave sins. Yeah, right on. Thank all you. Right. Yeah. Is that provocative? Really? I've been counting on Jesus to forgive my sins since I was about eight years old. You know, when I hear that, I, I'm like, yeah, right on, Jesus, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need him to forgive me after today, I can tell already. <laughs> uh, no, when Jesus, when Jesus came to earth and he's walking around through the streets of, uh, the, and, the, and the villages of, of Israel, and he's going to different places, one time he comes across this man, and the man is paralyzed, can't walk, can't move. Yeah, that's a recipe for dying in that generation when there wasn't a lot of assistance to help. And his friends gather him up, place him on a mat. They carry his mat to Jesus, where Jesus is, but Jesus is in a house teaching somewhere. And the crowd is, the crowd is packing into this house. You can't even get into the door, much less up to where Jesus was. So the friends of this paralyzed guy, they take him up on the roof. They dig through the roof, which would tick me off. It was my house. That's provocative. That's not Jesus. That's the dudes on the roof. But they got this guy with them, and they, they dig out a hole in the roof where they estimate Jesus was underneath that. And Jesus is talking, and dirt's falling on his head while they're digging through. And that would tick him off, except that he's forgiving of sins, right? So then they lower this guy down, and right in front of Jesus, he can't move. And, Jesus, and, they're, and what they're saying is, would you heal our friend? Now, it's not provocative to heal I mean, it's provocative because like, wow, I, I can't do that. That's pretty amazing. But everyone goes, wow, he healed. That's really good. So what they're asking is, Jesus, would you heal our friend and let him walk? And Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And what happened? The religious leaders who were in the room watching from the edges, trying to check out what this new rabbi's doing, they're like, oh, no. Jesus, you can't do that. You can't say that. You can't forgive sins because there's only one person in the universe who can forgive sins. And who's that? God. 
And Jesus goes, oh, you know, just, just to let you know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the dude on the mat, hey, friend, get up, take your mat, go home. And the guy hops up. Jesus healed him. He hops up, gets his mat, and walks out. That was provocative, full of grace. It was grace seasoned with salt. That's what it was. Now for us, we, you know, if you've been following Jesus very long, you go, yeah, I, I get that whole forgiveness thing. Never let that get tired. Never let that grow cold in your life. Because the very first time Jesus forgave your sins was a miracle. And every time he forgives your sins, it's a miracle. And it comes from the power of God. Josh, did you... I'm over here. Hello. Oh, yes, you are. Good. Yes. Hey, Josh, let's do another one okay. then, okay? I've got my friend, Kim. Kim. Everyone chose, say hi, Kim. Who chose a fantastic color of shirt hey, I, today. I, wait, wait, wait. I, I, everyone say hi, Kim. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, now you can go ahead. Sorry, and, you give me a microphone, I'm going to talk. I so. noticed that. <laughs> okay, Kim, go ahead and pull one out. <laughs> wrong glasses. Switching glasses. Oh, there we go. Okay. Okay. Jesus worked on the Sabbath. Matthew 12, 114. Jesus worked on the Sabbath. Is that provocative? Really? Do you work on the Sabbath? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound all that provocative. You all work. I work on the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, the same thing that got Jesus in trouble when he healed that guy on the mat, got him in trouble because he would heal people on the Sabbath day. I, it was really interesting. Look through all the Gospels. So in the, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, look up those books, those stories, and read the life of Jesus and find out how many healings he did. And then figure out how many times those healings happened on Saturday, which is the Sabbath. Check it out. Almost everything he did, at least it gets recorded, is happening on a Sabbath day. And, this, and the Pharisees would see Jesus do this, and they'd say, stop healing people on the Sabbath. There's six other days. Heal them on that day. And then, you know, they, they realized Jesus wasn't listening, so they talked to the sick people. They'd go, look, there's six other days to get healed. Stay home on the Sabbath. Don't come, because he's going to heal you. <laughs> Let it go for a day. But Jesus tended to heal people on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Pharisees had made these rules. God had given the original command. He said, Keep, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And, they, and he goes down and he, he talks about what they shouldn't do, like no, no work. And in fact, the people of Israel ignored that law for all their generations. And God was so uh, offended by the fact that they wouldn't keep his Sabbath that he ended up sending them off into exile for 70 years so that the land could rest, so that the nation could rest finally. And he finally brought them back into the land after their captivity 70 years later. And the religious leaders were so afraid of losing their place again that they, they kept that law hard and fast. They, they made the general command that God gave, they made it so specific. You couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. You couldn't spit and make mud on the Sabbath, literally. 
You can only go so many steps from your house on the Sabbath, and here comes Jesus, and people come to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and, they, and they're sick, and they want to get healed. And so what did Jesus do? Healed them. Boy, that ticked the Pharisees off. That was provocative to them. Jesus said, why are you so upset? They said, because you're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. He says, it is always lawful to do good. It is always lawful to do good. Don't let your religious rules get in the way of the heart of God. Don't let your religious rules get in the way of what God wants to do in our world. Josh, let's do one more. One more. Okay. Right, who do you got? I've got Junder. I'll give you a chance to everybody to say hi to Junder. Say hi, hi. Junder. Okay. Nice job, Josh. Thank you. I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, way to go. Jesus talked to women without men present. John 4, verses 139. Jesus talked to women without men present. Whoa, what are the, the catcalls for? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Imagine that. That, that. that Jesus talking to women without men present. Huh. Now, now, in our day, here's the deal. In our day, in the business, in the business world, if a man says, I'm not going to talk to a, a woman in the, you know, in the marketplace unless there's another man present, you'd get fired. So it's not provocative today that Jesus talked to women without men present. But in that day, it was shocking. There's a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus uh, had sent his disciples into town to get some food. They were all hungry. He said, hey, you guys, take the money, go in and get some food, bring it all back. I'm just going to sit here by this well and wait for you. And while he's sitting by this well, a woman comes up by herself. She's got a jar of water, and Jesus begins to talk to her. And they have this amazing conversation. John chapter 4, it's an amazing conversation of Jesus and this woman talking about God and worship and the Messiah and all this stuff that related so much to Jesus. And when the disciples get back to, to Jesus finally with food, they're, they're scratching their head. They're going, why is he talking to that woman? We don't talk to women. Then it was, it was kind of a double bad for, her, for, for him in this case because it was a Samaritan woman. And the disciples are scratching their head. They, just, they can't figure out why he will be talking to women. And he's laying out the gospel for her. And at the end of the conversation, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And he talks about that for a while. And then she says, you know, we have this, we have this prophecy that there's going to be a, uh, a Messiah that comes. Do you know anything about him? And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And he gave her the gospel. He introduced himself as the Messiah, the Son of God, to her. We sometimes, as churches, get sort of a bad rap, like, and maybe sometimes we deserve it, but like churches haven't treated women all that well all along through our history. But we are so far from the heart of Christ in that. Because from the beginning, Jesus broke the traditions regarding women. And how they could be involved in the community and how they can be involved in leadership and various things like that. Jesus broke those cultural constraints. 
And sometimes the church has picked up well on that, and sometimes the church has missed that. But Jesus broke those constraints. And now in our generation, we go, well, of course he talked to women, and of course, of course he did these other things that are recorded in the Gospels with women. But that's not how it was in that generation. It was crazy weird that he was talking to that woman at that well. And yet Jesus said, that's how it's going to be. I'm going to look at all you human beings together as the same. Men, women, children, you all have intrinsic value from God, and I'm going to treat you that way. What is that? That's full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to respond to each person. That's how churches thrive with life. That's how churches stay alive. That's how churches grow forward because we follow Jesus in those things. And you can do that not only as a church, but we can do that in our own individual lives with the people that are in the front row of our life, our oikos. We can lean in just like that. And he calls us to. Full of grace, seasoned with salt for every person in our life. Jesus, I pray for us today for this. Lord, we don't always get right what you told us. We don't always understand the provocation that you brought. We don't always understand the helpful things that you brought or the engaging things that you did. Sometimes the cultural barrier between your time on earth and our time today is so great that we don't see it. So I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be opened to the way in which you did things and the reason for which you did things and the outcome that came from those things. I pray that our eyes would be open to those. Lord, sometimes the challenge is not what we understand. Sometimes the challenge is what we desire. Sometimes our desires get in the way of yours. Our way of wanting to do things get gets in the way of you and what you want to do in us and through us. So, Lord, I pray for us today that our vision would be clear, that our hearts would be pure, that we would see like you see and we would live like you live, and that you would bring your light to the world. Lord, thanks for loving us as much as you do. We love you back. Amen.